Good morning. How y'all doing? Who's excited to leave this church today? <laughs> Listen, here's the deal. Today we're going to talk about something that for some of you is going to be so liberating and freeing. I mean, you're going to walk out of here unburdened. And for some of us, it's going to do the exact opposite. It's going to disrupt and disorient something that maybe has been a huge part of the way you've thought about God and faith. So today's a complex reality. In fact, that's probably true of what's going to happen throughout this whole series. And so as we talk about the Bible today, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I wanted to encourage you to keep listening. Okay, so if I say something and it disrupts your brain a little bit, keep listening. If I say something and it irritates you, keep listening. If I say something and it frees you, keep listening. And if at the end of today's talk, you are feeling not free, but you're feeling confused or you're feeling, wait a second, I'm, I, I'm a little irritated here, I'm a little angry here, please, my phone number is in the program. Text me and let's have coffee, okay? because I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying, all right? And so, so from the beginning, as we get ready to talk about what has become for many people in the Christian faith more important than Jesus himself, <laughs> when we start to talk about the Bible, I recognize that it can be disorienting when we start to hear language or words or phrases or things that we've never heard before. So please, 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 please don't leave the church. I mean, leave today. Don't stay here. You know, you should go home. But it would be, I think, a, a huge injustice to leave here, leave this place, and then never really have clarity of what's being said, right? Maybe there's just some confusion. Okay, so I, I want to say this right now. The most important set of writings in my life <laughs> is the Bible. All right, are you with me? The most important set of written things that have guided my life, that have spoken to my heart, that have helped me understand the divine is the Bible. I, will not, I, I, I won't tell you that I love the Bible, okay? Because I don't, I, that word I think I should reserve the word love for things like ice cream and my spouse, okay? But... I want it to be very clear. I take the Bible very, very seriously. I have no desire to come up with a definition of the Bible that quote-unquote allows me to get away with whatever I want. One of the wonderful, great sound bites that's out there in the world right now. Okay? So I want you to hear that. I have spent my entire life with this book. And when I say my entire life, I'm not talking about my entire adult life. I'm talking about I grew up in a pastor's home. Probably the first present I ever got was a Bible. I grew up being told I had to read the Bible every day. I grew up trying to read the Bible every day of my life. I grew up, I took Latin in junior high and high school because I knew I was going to spend my life in the Bible. I've taken years of Greek and Hebrew. I, I have invested myself in this book, okay? So I take it very seriously. Now, with that being said, <laughs> I'm going to share with you today some thoughts, 
Some are, I think a lot are very positive about a way forward with this book. And some are, I think, some unhealthy, some uh, unuseful language that have produced a lot of pain and hurt in the world and in people's lives and in countries uh, and in races. And so we're going to just talk this through today, okay? Um, are, are you with me? Okay. Oh, this is going to be so much fun. <laughs> Lord, help me in the most sense of the word. All right. First of all, what I've got here are just a few Bibles from my office. Just a few. There's more up there if you're interested. And all these Bibles, in some senses, are different translations. They're different, um, they have different uses. This one right here is what's called a synopsis, and so it takes the four Gospels and puts them in columns, parallels, so you can see how they're different. Uh, this one uh, was put together by a group of scholars about the Gospels, and it organizes and helps you understand like what scholars believe go most originally back to Jesus and what are more about the communities that follow Jesus from the Gospels. Uh, this is one that I used a whole bunch, uh, and I would preach from for a long time. This is a reader's Hebrew-Greek Bible. It's all the Hebrew and Greek, but if the word is used less than 50 times, it gives it to you as a cheat sheet because it's kind of really hard to remember all those Greek and Hebrew words. I don't use that anymore. I've got a, a job, so um, <laughs> I trust all the translators that do, have done a great job, right? Um, this one's called the Net Bible. Not exactly sure. I don't remember why it was called that, but I think it has to do with the internet and notes and things like that that are out there. Um, this one is actually right now one of my favorite ones. It's a translation I've really, I really enjoy um, that was done by the Catholic bishops here in America. It's a really interesting translation. A lot of times I use that. All that to say, there's lots of different Bibles that float around out there. Some that have notes from different traditions. Um, some that I have a Bible upstairs. I think I think I still have it. I might have thrown it away. I know that might sound really harsh too, but um, it was called the Spirit-filled Bible, <laughs> as if the other twelve I had weren't. <laughs> We're so messed up, so messed up. Okay. So the first thing I want to say is this: for many of us in the room, the Bible has been a significant source of hope. How many of you would say amen to that? Right? It's, it's a source of hope. We've opened it up at times in our lives that are difficult, and we've encountered the divine. And, and it's had that, it, it, and, and we've said there's something uh, supernatural, there's something mystical, there's some reality to what I've experienced as I've read this, and it draws you in, and there's a hope-filled experience. And I also want to say... <laughs> For some of us, maybe the same people, I know it counts for me, the Bible has been a significant source of trauma as well. Can I get an amen? The way the Bible has been used has been a source of pain and hurt in our lives as much as at times it's a source of hope. And I've come to believe this in my heart of hearts, and I think it's a fundamental truth, and I think it's a reality, and I've written a, an article for a, a, an organization on this, so it floats around out there, my opinions. I'm not telling you something that you couldn't Google and find. The biggest problem that we face right now in Christianity when it comes to this Bible are these words, inerrant and infallible. And they're these words that have emerged to describe what this book is. And the doctrines, which were not established in any ancient creed, 
There was no council that came together and said the Bible is this. It developed over time, really beginning around the 16th century and took hold in the 17th and 18th century. But this doctrine of infallibility and inerrancy, the idea that inside the Bible there are no errors whatsoever, that God dictated through people a perfect self-revelation, that you are to read it literally, has allowed leaders like me <laughs> to control, to manipulate, to spiritually abuse people, to suppress women, to justify all kinds of things over the last 300 years. I believe that deeply. And I believe that one of the most important things that has to happen for people to be empowered to follow Jesus, to live in a healthy spirituality, to engage with this text in a healthy way is we have to honor that reality, and that's hard because most of us have grown up being handed that this is the only way that you can look at the Bible. And the truth is that Christians right now are leaving the church because of the Bible more than any other reason. Like the statistics are showing, the research that's being done on a growing group of people called the nuns, not nuns as in Catholic nuns, but the nuns as in no religious affiliation anymore, I claim nothing. Like that incredible growth that's taking place, one of the number one reasons is because of the Bible. And, and, and particularly, more precisely, it's the paradigm that they were handed about what the Bible is, right? And this paradigm that took shape over the 18th and 19th century, that it's a divine rule book, that inside of it you will find everything you need and you should make this book your rule for faith and life. Any question you have, this is what it's going to be. There's, this is so clear. The doctrines, there's absolutes. You interpret it literally, and that has become a massive stumbling block for a lot of people who claim to follow Jesus, who fell in love with Jesus as this idea of a visible image of God, who had experiences that were very spiritual, very real, but at the end of the day, they were faced with being told, this is what the Bible says, and this is how you have to live, and this is how you're not supposed to live, and this is what you have to do, and this is who God is. And all of a sudden, what developed in their heart and life was a basic modicum respect of science, a basic kind of reality to the world, like living in it, and they could no longer take certain things literally in the Bible, could no longer do it. So things that, that many of us could no longer, given our experiences, given science, take literally, were things like six days of creation. So it can't do it. Stories of Adam and Eve, right? The idea that God ordered the slaughter of men, women, children, and infants. That God would legitimate and regulate slavery. That God ordered the subordination of women. That unbelieving Jews are the children of the devil, that the only way to salvation is a literal record that God keeps in a literal book that has to literally be wiped away by sacrificing the literal Son of God. Like, forget, the, forget that God is completely against child sacrifice earlier in the story. Like, let's just put that one away. But that's what, this is how it is. And, and this is my favorite one that we were told you have to believe that the second coming of Jesus will involve the death and destruction and annihilation of most of humanity. Super consistent with the Jesus that we came to fall in love with. And so what happens is, like, we're handed that, and then we find ourselves in, like, this disconnect. And what we're told the Bible has to be and what the Bible is, like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even make sense from the people that are teaching it to us because it's inconsistent. There's, this, there's such inconsistency in God. 
And that's why it gets articulated. I hear this all the time. Why is the God of the Old Testament so angry and Jesus so nice? Y'all ever thought that or said that or heard that? Like that's a manifestation of this internal friction. Peter ends in his book, uh, The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It. This is what he says. He says, the Bible has become or can become a challenge to one's faith in God rather than a source of faith. It can become a problem that has to be overcome rather than the answer to our problems. And so the Holy Bible, the source book for spiritual comfort and guidance and insight, it can make us squirm or just at least fidget. And it just won't do anymore to believe otherwise. In fact, it's good to come clean about it and clear the air. Like, let's say it out loud. The question is, what do we do about it? And so people are leaving and they're abandoning and they're saying, I can no longer be a part of this Christian tradition, right? I can no longer do this because they, they say, well, I've got to, I, I only, I can't see it that way and I've never been given another option. Like this is, for the Bible to be important, I've been told my whole life, this is what it has to be and I can no longer in good conscience go with that because the fruit of it and what I'm seeing and the hatred and the, the bigotry and the oppression, like I, I, I so, so the only logical thing to do, the only spiritually healthy thing to do is to walk away. Because see, what happened was this. Somewhere along the way, we were given two options in the faith tradition that I grew up in and that many of you maybe have grown up in. And the two options, <laughs> or really it's one option, the sad part about it is it's totally agreeable to both atheists and Christians. <laughs> like this definition of the Bible makes perfect sense to an atheist and a fundamental Christian. And this is what we're handed. The Bible is the word of God. I put that in quotation marks because that's an important phrase. Is the word of God only because it's historically accurate 100%. It's a perfect self-revelation of God. It's without any error, and it therefore should be taken literally, and we give it all authority in our lives. That's what it is, because that's what it is. And if it's not that, then why, why have it at all? Like, that's the argument. Like, if it's not that, what's the point? It's just another book. And the atheist comes along and says, aha, I completely agree with you. Absolutely. If the Bible is a perfect history book, if the Bible is a perfect, accurate reflection of God, if there is no errors within it, then it certainly is the Word of God, and we should submit our lives to it completely, but it's not that, so we don't have to. So it's just, it's just another silly writing from a time that we didn't live in, because the Bible is actually not, they say the Bible's not historically accurate. It offers contradictory images of God. It's not without error. Therefore, by your own logic, it's not the Word of God, and it has no authority. And that's what we're handed. And so we either suspend our reason, we suspend our reality, and we just kind of come and we accept, well, I don't believe that. How many, of, can we just be honest for a second? <laughs> Raise your hand up nice and high if you've ever heard me say something from the Bible, and you've been like, yeah, that's nice, right? I don't believe it. <laughs> right? Fair enough, right? And we just kind of, it's kind of like the idea that, that our brains are wired in such a way to suppress the reality of all the dangers in the world that we experience, right? Like, like people are afraid to fly because, oh, something gonna, bad's going to happen, but statistically speaking, there's a far greater chance of you being hit by a car going on a walk than, than ever dying in an airplane. But our brain just kind of like processes all that in a healthy way. If not, we become neurotic and we, we have, you know, we do have to deal with that in a different way. Spiritually, we do the same thing. So we either just kind of like pretend, and we, and we then have a faith that isn't whole. It can't hold it all together. We just have to like compartmentalize it. But here's the thing. 
if we continue in that space, eventually where we come to is just like, well, what am I holding on to? What are the handles? And without a fresh perspective on this Bible, right, the only spiritually healthy decision that's going to come to our lives as we get more and more disconnected, as we get more and more dissatisfied, as we, as we go deeper and deeper into deconstruction, which I believe is healthy, by the way, deeply healthy, it's just to walk away from a gathered church that says, you have to follow the Bible. And if you don't follow the Bible, then it has no benefit in your life. And, and, and we need a fresh perspective so that we can move beyond that dualistic way of seeing. And, and if we're going to get there, if we're going to say, well, what is this fresh perspective? The first thing we have to get is just a little secret about this literal, factual methodology of interpretation that we've been handed. And here's the little secret. This current obsession with literal, factual interpretation, this current obsession with infallibility and inerrance, that here's a little secret nobody wants you to know about. It's a product of modernity. It did not take grip, it did not take hold until really post-Reformation in the 16th century, the Enlightenment kicks in, post-Western Enlightenment world gets enamored by facts. And now the only way you can experience truth, because science is now get coming into view, right? And we're saying science can help us understand the world. And guess what? Religion is abused and religion has told us all this stuff, but science is now contradicting religion. And now it's about facts, what we can show and identify, the scientific method. Wonderful, beautiful, we needed that. I'm grateful for it. Like we all have much longer lives because of science. But the response to that was, oh, well, if this is how we really know, it's facts. If that's how we get to truth, now we have to make the Bible this factual, literal reality. And so it begins to emerge. And the central way of seeing the Bible as infallible, inerrant, literal, factual, is really something that's just emerged over the past few hundred years. And in fact, has been the source of the most like, violent behavior. It's been the source of murder. It's been the source of abuse. I mean, all of it. But the earliest proponents of this concept, right? You know, the earliest like, kind of signs that we see like when it really becomes really important was when we were trying to tell Galileo that he was wrong about the sun being the center of the universe. Isn't that funny? Like this doctrine emerges and grips the church, grips hearts and becomes defining so that we can prove that the earth is still the center of the now, there might be a few of you in here that haven't caught up. <laughs> like, when this, when this doctrine takes hold, everybody thought the world was flat still. In a lot of ways. Everybody thought that there were these layers, literal layers. And they were all flat. And there was heaven. And there was this place of the dead abode below. Like, when we... We've had a few shifts along the way in our way of thinking. But that's where it grips a hold of, right? And so it really takes off in the 18th and 19th centuries in the aftermath. As, as the Enlightenment begins to critique religion, as it rightfully should have, and it began to critique some of the stories that were in there, there was this doubling down. But prior to modernity, prior to that, and it really was this more than literal meaning that was a part of the Christian life, that it was sought after. In fact, as early as this guy named Origen, I mentioned him last week, there's a guy named Origen. He was in the second century, right? And he was writing, and, and he, he kind of wrote about this. And we're talking very, like, within a few hundred years of Jesus, right? So early on in the, in the history of the church, like, Origen writes this. 
This is what he says. <laughs> and, and again, if you're a six-day creationist, this is going to offend you, and I don't mean to, because I don't really care, to be quite honest with you, if you believe in six days of creation or not. I don't think it matters. But this is what he says. What intelligent person can imagine that there was a first day, then a second and a third day, evening and morning, without the sun, the moon, and the stars? Now, if you're not familiar with the story in Genesis, the sun, the moon, and the stars are created on the fourth day. And so Origen is saying, what, what intelligent person? He says, and that the first day, if it makes sense to call it such, existed even without sky. If you don't know the story, the sky was created on the second day. And he says, who's foolish enough to believe that like a human gardener, God planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed in it a tree of life, visible and physical, so that by biting into its fruit, one would obtain life, and that by eating from another tree, one would come to know good and evil. And when it is said that God walked in the garden in the evening and that Adam hid himself behind a tree, I cannot imagine that anyone will doubt that these details point symbolically to spiritual meanings by using a historical narrative which did not literally happen. I mean, this is within two generations of Jesus walking this earth, right? Like a, an early church leader, a church father saying, what? Now we get caught up in all that. So, so we have to recognize that this infatuation with words like infallibility and error, first of all, they're nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in any writing, not in one letter, not in one gospel, not in one prophetic writing. They don't exist within the pages of the Christian scripture. And the infatuation is fairly recent in the history of a 2,000-year-old movement. <laughs> and even in its earliest days, we know that this more than literal meaning was what was highly important. So what is a fresh perspective on the Bible? Let's just talk very positively, right? So I've been talking negatively. Wah, wah, okay? But I want to own the reality. But let's talk positively. So what is a fresh perspective on the Bible? What's emerging, right? Okay, so a fresh perspective, number one, affirms a historical metaphorical interpretation of the Bible. Okay, two big words, historical and metaphorical. And quite honestly, a fresh perspective interprets all of Christianity in such a way. Even the creeds, we recognize them for what they are in their historical metaphorical realities. But we're talking about the Bible today. So what does this mean? Historical, it means that the scriptures that we have, right, the, the texts that are within the, 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 the leather, oh, we love it, leather, the smell of a new Bible, how many of y'all have been around long enough to actually have had a, a, one of these like paper Bibles and new leather? It just reads better, doesn't it? It just reads better, you know? Um, in all of these writings, right, this is a product of two historical communities, a Jewish community, ancient Israel, and the early Christian movement. So it's a deeply human product. It flows out of their experiences. And it flows from their vulnerabilities. It flows from their doubts. It flows from their cultures, right? Rene Girard, a philosopher, he says that the text itself, I love this phrase, is what's called a text in travail. That inside of it, there are passages and stories that reveal a three steps forward movement in human psyche. That inside of it, like Jonah, for example, is a three step forward book, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah. Like the story of Jonah ends with this indictment on Jonah. How could you not love all these people and their animals? How can you not see that they're so valuable to me? That is a giant three-step forward in a tribal society. Like, where did that come from? Beautiful. But it's also filled with two-step backward passages. Like, go kill all the Amalekites, every one of them. This is what God says. 
Murder the babies. Keep the virgins for yourselves. But hold on, hold on. This is the same God who in Jonah is like, how could you not love? Look at how many people there are. We got a problem, right? So that's a text in travail. And to come to the, the writings, just honoring, that's what it is. It is what it is. It's freeing. It's beautiful that it's a human product. It's written by messy, normal human beings with a vision for God, Right? and the people they were writing it to. <laughs> so these were not, I mean, I hate to break the news to you, but like Paul, when he wrote his letter, let's say to the Thessalonians, he wasn't writing it to you. You know that, right? You're not that special. <laughs> like you weren't even a thought to Paul. He's writing to very specific people, applying very specific ways that he saw as a first century Pharisee who had kind of converted to Messianic Pharisaism, who's now trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Like, he's writing very specifically to these folks, okay? So, that's beautiful to me. Like, Paul's writing Whoever's writing first, they're writing in response to their understanding of God, how the world works, how they saw things. It's a human product, and that's wonderful. I don't trust something that's not human. I don't know about you, <laughs> but there's a part of me that's like, uh, I need Jesus to be fully human, right? I need my scriptures to be fully human, like the real lived experience of getting it wrong sometimes. And that's what we have. And that is actually beautiful. The scriptures, the stories, it, it speaks of the authors, how they saw God, how they lived with an understanding of God. Their stories are how they perceived God's involvement in their world, how they interpreted the realities that they were experiencing. It was how they made their laws in an, and how they created ethics given the paradigms that they were given. It's their prayers, their praises, their wisdom on how to live in their times. And so all of this stuff, right, in the Bible, it's then related to their time and their place. And that's what we mean by historical. We have to start there. Like, that's what it's for. It uses the language and the concepts of that culture which it takes place. I have zero, by the way, when has everybody got to leave today? <laughs> Listen, I have zero problems with a, like atonement metaphors for those of you that are really into this stuff. I have no problems with atonement metaphors that deal with sacrifice and substitution. I have no problems with it because they're in the text. I get that. Because it made perfect sense to a culture that believed the only way you could deal with God was through animal sacrifice. I have no problems with, with, with an interpretation of the cross based upon that. I have deep problems with saying that's ontological. Like that's what it has to be literally. Because I didn't grow up in a culture that said, for me to be in any relationship with the gods, I've got to go out and sacrifice animals. It makes no sense, but it made perfect sense. And it's how you provide a meaning. So that interpretation, I can hold to what it actually means, is that in some mysterious, beautiful way, the cross and the life and the death of Jesus prepares the way for us to get rid of all these things that hinder our ability to know God. And one of the great hindrances for, the, for, for Paul and for others at the time to get to know God, to be present with God, were all the religious structures and systems and sacrifices and all those things. So what do you do? You interpret that reality, that big picture, that big truth in a way that makes sense in your culture. It's beautiful and it makes perfect sense. 
But what is problematic is when I say, well, that's the only way to understand it. You have to throw out all the other metaphors of salvation, all those things of like healing and restoration of sight to the blind, right? And, and a heart being turned from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, right? They're all pointing to the same thing. And so when we come to the text of Scripture, a healthy way, a fresh perspective says, let's understand the historical realities, right? And then, right, let's recognize there's an inspiration in that. <laughs> like, we, we don't, I'm not denying the inspiration of it. I'm not denying that a person was so moved to write and think and give us this and that God was somehow involved in that, that the Spirit was somehow a part of it. But I don't think that means that somehow I just, I've never seen God completely overwhelm a person so that their faculties are not part of the equation, so that their fears and failures and misconceptions, God's just not into control. I don't see that in the God of the Bible. I don't see that in my life lived out. And so I recognize that that's beautiful. So the emphasis, right, is not upon words that are inspired, but people, people inspired people that were moved to write down these things. that said, this is important. This is how we're experiencing. These texts mean a lot to us. So when the writer of 2 Timothy says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that no one who belongs to God may be competent, so that everyone, right, excuse me, so that everyone who belongs to God may be competent and equipped for every good work. I got no problems with that. I just don't see that at all. As for, for this to be instructive, right, and again, for Paul, he's probably talking about his scriptures, which was probably just the Torah, the first five books of the Bible at that point in time. But if my tradition tells me, here's the text, here's the sacred scriptures, I have no problems with that. I think it makes perfect sense. It can be instructive. It can rebuke me. It can challenge me. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to have no, any errors. How could it not? It, it, it does not in any way, shape, or form, diminish the significance or the idea of inspiration. Inspiration is not the suspension of human limitation, but the working through human limitations. Would we not agree that that's how God has always worked in every culture and every time that God works through human limitations, that love, if you like that word better, love works through human limitations? If that's the consistent reality of our world, why would that, in, that consistency be suspended in this? And why would it be suspended in this in a way that, like, we have no record of Jesus ever saying, here's the deal, for about 350 years, it is going to be a mess, but then you all are going to get the books right. And then at that point, you're not going to need me. It's going to be good. You're going to have everything you need to know. I mean, we just, it's not there. But what's there is like what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we hold this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing power may be of God and not from us right? The treasure is the encounter with God, right? The treasure is grace. The treasure is love. The treasure is beauty and mystery. The treasure is Jesus. And we hold it in earthen vessels. Ourselves, we're an earthen vessel. This is an earthen vessel. We hold that treasure in it. And we encounter God in all of it. So historical means we recognize that this treasure comes to us from history, from real life lived people that were not perfect. And that that does, that does not in any way, shape, or form negate a, an idea of inspiration or importance. Now, the second word there is metaphorical. So a metaphorical meaning, right, it's just, it's not inferior to a literal meaning. That's the Western Enlightenment brain speaking, what we've all been so influenced by. We hear the word metaphor, and we immediately think that that means not as true as fact. And that's such a new concept in the history of the world. 
And so when we think about metaphor, when it comes to stuff that you can't actually bring into the realm of fact, sometimes it's the only way to deal with these great truths. So the Bible contains both history and metaphor, no doubt about it. It's a historical memory. There's, there's historical narratives in there. But their metaphor all intertwined. Some of the events that it speaks about really actually happened. They really actually happened. Now, but it's how the community preserved the memory of how those events actually happened. Y'all ever caught a fish in Dennis? And told the story of the fish. It wasn't quite accurate, but boy, it meant a lot to you. It was truth. I fought that thing. I fought it. I fought it like it was a novel. Pulled it in. These communities preserved their stories and they brought meaning. The Exodus brought meaning. Walls of Jericho brought meaning. These stories that we learned in Sunday school, they brought deep meaning about the nature of God. Whether they are factually, historically, 100% accurate becomes unimportant in a metaphorical understanding. So when a text contains historical information or historical memory, it's still the more than literal meaning that matters most. The reason why you have the story of the Exodus is not so we can know the story of the Exodus. It's so that we can understand that God is a God of liberation. That God is a God of the oppressed. That the God of the Bible, the God revealed in Jesus, is a God who sees our pain and is present working to bring freedom from it. And so, the, so, so was there some Exodus out of Egypt did, did the origin of the ancient Israelite community come from there? Well, that's a great question for scholars that work it all out, and it's really fun to debate. And, you know, is there any evidence for this mass exodus of millions and millions of people? I, wonderful. Let's have the conversation. But my understanding of God, my faith in the, the idea that Jesus lives is not based upon whether I can find historical facts that a guy named Moses let a whole bunch of people, it's just, it's not, there's an emerging way of seeing Scripture that says it's a beautiful conversation to have, but it's about far more than that. And so the beauty of a metaphorical interpretation is it requires no decision on my part or your part regarding the literal factual record. It just doesn't, it's fine, it's wonderful, let's have a conversation. But that factual, literal record, it, I, don't, I don't have to come to a conclusion, like my faith is not grounded in that which is why my faith can survive adulthood. <laughs> why we've done such a terrible job out of fear of preparing our young people for an adult faith. Is that to say we don't teach Bible stories? Absolutely not. They're powerful. They're wonderful. It's great, but when we teach it in such a way that says, if it didn't happen, then forget it. Like if the flood didn't come and destroy everybody on the earth, if Jesus didn't do that too, if we believe Jesus is God, and somewhere along the way Jesus became compassionate, right? I mean, we, have, we can still teach stories and teach the beauty of God, and we, all these things are wonderful, but we understand the powers and the metaphors, so I don't have to take everything literal. I don't have to say, well, this is who God is because the Bible says so. Because again, I don't think the stories were ever meant to teach us this is exactly who God is. They're meant to teach us bigger things that come through a metaphorical understanding. So, metaphor is primarily interested with the question, what does it mean? What does it mean? Whether it's a story about Jesus, whether it's a story about Moses, whether it's creation, the big question is, what does it mean? German novelist named Thomas Mann, this is what he said. He said, a myth is a story 
about the way things never were, but always are. Isn't that good? Now, if I tell you, I mean, I, this happened. I'll never forget the first Christmas Eve I was here. I was talking about our ancient, and I used the phrase, I mean, I don't use it pejoratively. I said, we, ha- we have inherited the Jewish creation myth that is beautiful. I believe that deeply, right? And that strikes a chord in an ear sometimes really hard. Because why? The Enlightenment has taught us myth is somehow less than fact. And I would say that you can't understand or make meaning without it. Like, where would our world be without the boy who cried wolf? (laughs) But there was no boy that ever cried wolf, but it happens all the time. If we don't learn that lesson, we can't mature into human beings, right, that are meant to live this life with ethics and integrity, right? So there's always a parabolic meaning. We got this terrible habit from Jesus. (laughs) There's always a a reading of the text. Now, here's a great example about Jesus. Now, I don't want to shatter your world, but let's talk about the parabolic meaning. The road to Emmaus. How many of you have ever heard the story of the road to Emmaus? If you've been around church Easter a few times. So here's the story. I'm going to read it really quickly for you. And then I want to I talk about it from a parabolic standpoint. So Luke 24, this is after the resurrection. Jesus is walking. It says, now, that very day, two of them were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus. And they were conversing about all the things that had occurred. So this is a historical reality. There is a real place called Emmaus. There is a real road that goes to Emmaus, right? So the scene has been set. We know what's happening. We know how long it takes to walk seven miles, Right? So they're walking seven miles, and it happened that while they were conversing and debating about all the stuff that had happened in Jerusalem, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Okay, you got the scene? There's a real road. (laughs) There's a real place called Emmaus. It's really seven miles away. People really walk it. It's post the, the cross. It's the day of resurrection. What has happened? What's going on? Jesus shows up and starts walking. Now, as they approached the village to which they were going, he gave the impression that he was going on further, this Jesus that they couldn't recognize. But they urged him, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. They never met this guy before, total stranger. But he started explaining things. I I skipped over because we don't have enough time. He starts explaining everything that happens. He starts talking about the scripture and prophecies. And and didn't you know this was what was supposed to happen? And this is all that's happening on the way on the road to Emmaus. So this perfect stranger, they don't know. They get into a conversation. They're talking about God. They're talking about faith. They still don't know it's Jesus. They come to their destination. And they say, well, why don't you just stay with us? Who in the world invites people they've never met to come and stay in their house? And it happened that while he was with them at the table, he took the bread. Now, if you're familiar with the Last Supper, this should sound very familiar. He took the bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. It's almost word for word. And it says, with that, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. Now, literally, did that literally happen? I have no idea. How could you know? But does it literally have to have happened to be true? Because here's what the question, what does it mean? Here's what it means. The risen Christ is with us as we journey through life only when we welcome the stranger into our midst. 
Maybe not only, but one way. That when we open up and when we talk about God, when we're confused, when we don't understand what's happening, but we interact with that tension and that mystery, guess what? The risen Christ is present right there with us, even if we don't recognize it. And when we gather together and we take the bread and we bless the bread and we break the bread and we consume the bread, guess what? The risen Christ is right there with us and our eyes will be opened. Now, is the story factually correct? Have no idea. No clue. And I've come to a space in my faith I don't really care because I'll never know that. I'll never have any idea. But is it true? Oh, well, I've experienced that. I've been transformed by my encounters with the stranger as I've wrestled and talked about God and I've listened to other opinions and I've allowed myself to be humble enough to trust that there's somebody that knows a little bit more than me. I've been transformed and my eyes have been opened to see Jesus like I never saw Jesus before. Have I journeyed in life and thought that God was not present with me, leaving me alone, helping me, making me wander absolutely only a few years later to be able to look back and have my eyes open and see how Jesus was with me the whole time? Absolutely. Undoubtedly, there's history in the Bible. Undoubtedly. But that's not the point. The point is that stories can be true even if they're not factual reports and to develop an understanding of you that says it has to be factual and here's the rules and if you don't follow the rules then God's not going to love you and you're going to go burn in hell and you've got to do all things right and we have to be pure. Have to, it's, it is horrible. And so a fresh perspective honors that historical metaphorical. It's not bothered at all. Not bothered at all about literal factual questions. doesn't matter. So very quickly, another thing that a fresh perspective does is it honors that the Bible is sacred. The Bible is sacred, not because of what it is, though. The Bible is sacred to the Christian because of the process that it went through called canonization. That our spiritual ancestors said, this is the best we got. <laughs> this is the best we got. And this document gives us identity and vision and understanding. And we interpret the more, the really real, it helps us. And so it's not sacred because it's perfect. It's sacred because we say it's sacred. <laughs> Because we say, this is our most ancient, right? This is our most open. Our, and so we affirm that. And in saying it's sacred, we are saying it's our foundational document. This is our foundation document. It provides us with an identity, a part, something that we're a part of. And it says, this is your wisdom tradition. As soon as the Bible is no longer central, to who we are as, as people following God, then we cease to be Christian. I would say that wholeheartedly, and, and that's okay. And again, I'm not saying that's bad. Like if a person goes through it and has to walk away and encounters God in a different way, I'm not, that's not a judgmental, I'm just saying, I think at the very heart of saying I'm part of the Christian tradition is to say that the scripture is one of the central realities. And as soon as it's not, then we have to question, are we actually in identifiable Christianity? Now the paradigm that we look at and the way we see it is different. It's our identity document, it's stories, it's vision. They shape our sense of who we are and our understanding of God, and it's our wisdom tradition. And wisdom tradition, wisdom at its finest, asks two questions of us, right? Two questions, what is real and how should we live? And, and, and we see those two questions being wrestled with by our spiritual ancestors, but not necessarily a perfect answer every time. But they're wrestling with what is real, what is God, and how should we live, given all of this. 
And finally, a fresh perspective affirms Jesus as the norm of Scripture. And I've talked a lot about this, but Jesus is the standard by which we interpret and think about every image of God we get. I believe that one of the things we have to reclaim in Christianity is that Jesus is the only Word of God. Jesus is it. Jesus is the only visible, fleshy Word of God that we have. And, and Scripture points us to the Word. We can encounter the Word at times in Scripture. But the Word of God, I affirm deeply, is, is grounded in Jesus for the Christian. And we hold that image. He is the decisive and ultimate vision of God. And we have to wrestle with that. And the Scripture is really the best that we have right now for who, who, what Jesus was like. What Jesus was like. And so I interpret all this. He's the decoder pen. I've talked about that in the past, right? And so when the Bible or any part in the Bible is in conflict with Jesus, who am I going with? Jesus. You can go with whoever you want. That's fine. And we can all get together and hang out. But I'm going with Jesus. <laughs> like, that's the best I got. And finally, a fresh perspective is sacramental in nature. The Bible is a sacrament. And what a sacrament is, is a finite physical image. It's, it's something that we have. It's a mediator, however, of what is sacred of God. And so I bring to it this understanding that somehow this is a bridge that helps me move from the unsacred realities of, of my day, and it brings me into the, the sacred real, the really real that's all around me, but my brain is not focused on. And Scripture can help me do that. Scripture can help mediate that in some way. And it does that. It's a sacrament. And it does it not because it's perfect, not because in it is every answer to the problem that I face, not because in it is a morality that is timeless. It's because I've said this is sacred and this is the tradition that I'm a part of. And it's at work in my heart and my life. Why? Because the Spirit of God is at work in it. So the words... The human products, they become vessels for the Word of God, Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, to work in my heart and my life. And so the Bible does, in a sense, become nourishment, right? It does. In, in one sense, it can become daily bread. And it shares a similar quality to the historical Jesus as an incarnation of sorts. And, it, and I think the bread of life, the Word of life only comes when I when I say, okay, I've got to suspend all reason, I suspend, this is what it says happened, this is how it is, and I've got to do this, and I've got to hate these people, and I've got to love these people, and I, and I read it all with equal weight, I'm going to have a problem. So here's the thing I don't want you to miss, and this is, we've got to wrap up. And this is going to be the hardest thing for some of you to hear, and I'm sorry I have to say it, but here's the thing about truth. It burdens you, and then when you welcome it in, it releases you into freedom. So here's the thing. A fresh perspective import is important. This fresh perspective that's emerging is super important. Why? Because sometimes the Bible is wrong. Sometimes the Bible is wrong. Did God, as represented in Jesus, send 10 plagues to the Egyptians that included the death of every firstborn male? I don't believe so. I think the Bible's wrong. Are women to be subjugated to men for all time as the head of the household, as the head of the church? No, I believe that's wrong. The Bible says that if a man rapes a virgin, that he has to marry her and can never divorce her. I think that's wrong. The Bible says that disobedient children could be taken outside of the city and stoned. I think that's wrong. 
The Bible says that God ordered the slaughter of the Amalekites. Every man, every woman, every child, every baby, except for the virgins. I think that's wrong. I don't think God ever did that. Don't think so. The Bible endorses and accepts slavery and says that God has instituted it in a sense. And it's been used for that. I think that's wrong. The Bible makes numerous claims that Jesus is coming again soon in the future from their point of view. I think they were wrong. I think they were wrong. I'm still here. (laughs) They're not. (laughs) And so what happens in our lives is some beautiful things. This fresh perspective, what it does is it frees us from the tyranny of those who would weaponize the Bible. I think that's a, a clear enough statement. But I do believe that this doctrine has been the number one most divisive violent, like source of violence. I mean, think about it. The belief that the Bible has some ultimate in, inerrant way of being interpreted and known led us to murder people who didn't believe in infant baptism. Pacifists who believed baptism was only for adults rampant persecution and murder. Why? Because, well, the Bible's inerrant and there's one way and you're outside the faith if you don't believe it. And so it frees us from those who would do that. And what it does in our everyday normal life, right? <laughs> if, we can, if we can somehow walk through the pain of a death and, and, and then enter into a resurrection, like this is the cruciform life. If I allow something to die in me the way I thought the Bible, what I was handed the Bible, what it had to be for it to be valuable, important, if I can let that die and let resurrect in me this, this other way of seeing it, I think, I think that we can embrace the Bible we have fully and not the one that modernity wanted us to have. And I think we can say, I, I, don't, need to, I don't need to stop it all. I don't, need to, I don't need to make it be something it's not. It's not a problem to be fixed. It's an invitation. That's what N says in his book. The Bible isn't a problem to be fixed. I got to make this verse line up with this verse and this book with this verse, what we call systematic theology. That, no, it's just, it's an invitation. We wander through it. We encounter the divine. We encounter our humanity in it. And I would encourage you to f- let reason be your travel guide through it. This was a huge part of it. Since antiquity, reason guided it. Martin Luther, Mr. Sola Scriptura, he was not a literalist. He said you have to bring plain reason to the text, right? St. Augustine said, I can't believe there are people that are disregarding what we know to be factually true from science to hold on to Bible verses. This was in the year 400, in the 400s. And so we let reason be a kind of travel companion with us on this journey. And I just would encourage you to remember that taking the Bible seriously doesn't mean taking it literally. We can take the Bible very seriously. We can engage with it devotionally. We can have it be a part of our lives, but it doesn't mean we're taking it literally. It doesn't mean that we're looking for a rule to follow it. If we don't follow it, then we're out of God's grace. It doesn't mean that there aren't wonderful things in here to apply to our lives and to follow. There is wisdom. There's wisdom. It is that sacrament. It's beautiful, and it, it can be a huge, beautiful thing. So, so maybe the encouragement is to stop looking for answers and just start looking for Jesus. <laughs> like, read the Bible. Like, this will blow your mind. I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to look for everything in the Bible that's anti-Christ. It'll be amazing. You'll, you'll then start, your eyes will start to be open to see how the antichrist in you 
all the antichrist in our churches, all the antichrist in our world. That's a beautiful revelation that comes through that reading. You'll find antichrist in the Old Testament, and you'll find antichrist in the New Testament. You'll find antichrist in Paul, in Peter. You will. It's there. Because it's just a part of our existence. That's why we, that's why we journey through this. That's why there's this thing called grace, right? That's the beauty of the revelation. And again, what makes this, what, what it does in our hearts and our lives in the world is that we will rediscover a Bible that we can love to read. We can rediscover that. But that might not be tomorrow. I recognize that for many of us who've been through that trauma. For many who've been through that. But I think the ultimate goal here is if there's part of your heart that longs to be in this tradition that, that, that has nourished you in so many ways, but you found yourself disillusioned by, there is a way of seeing. There is a way of being. There's a way of recognizing that I can still trust that God is present with me as I engage with this. But I just have to let it be what it is. And it's amazing how if I'll just let reality be and truth be, I can be transformed by it. And I can actually live out what Jesus said, love, love, love. All right, it's late. I'm gonna give you your blessing and they're gonna sing a beautiful song that you're welcome to stick around if you don't have kids. Wait, what if I do have kids? Oh wait, you've got kids, <laughs> hold on. Darn it. This is a beautiful song called Simple Gospel. You're welcome to stay and let it be a meditative space in your heart. If you need to get going, obviously get going. These are big topics, and I don't know how else I'm trying. I'm sorry. I love you, and I want you to be free. I want you to be free from being controlled by me. I want you to be free of being controlled by an idea of what this is. And I want you to be controlled by love as your pastor. I want us to be controlled by love. And I want us to recognize that that necessarily means that there's, that there's evolution in our lives and in our hearts, that humanity moves forward. And whoever said that God was done speaking? Whoever told us that? How is that even? I mean, I've just had to come to this space that, I mean, no, 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 love. Love moves forward. And if evil is going to persist, and if evil is going to change its shape, if evil is going to evolve, love has to. Because I believe at the end of the day, love wins. Stand up with me, would you please? Our blessing for today, and then this song, if you'd like to stick around, fill out your connect card, your offering, I want to encourage you to give generously. Give generously, please. Participate in what we're trying to do here in that way. So, Give me the blessing up there, crew, and we're going to switch it up. We're not going to do the song. We're going to do the blessing. So here we go. This week, may God, may God bless you with the desire to read the Bible. And that, for some, is a miracle. I get it. But read it not as an easy way to find answers for how to live or as a divine rule book, but may you read it for the inspired, sacred, beautiful reality of what it is, a means by which we can experience transformation and wisdom that it is our foundational document, that it does shape the vision of me and of you, and it can shape our identity and help us to always hold with conviction the centrality of Scripture in our faith, God, that we would take it seriously even when we don't take it literally. And for those of you watching, listening, checking this out on demand, that maybe a friend said, 
you got to listen to this is a totally different way of thinking about the Bible than I've ever heard. And you're wondering, is God at work? Here's the deal, because it's been weaponized against you for you. If you've experienced Scripture as a weapon to manipulate and control you, may you find a path to healing, a fresh perspective on the Bible that's grounded in grace and wisdom and reason. And this morning, God, we are grateful for this collection of writings. We are grateful for the people who were inspired to write them. Now give us eyes to see and ears to hear how your spirit was speaking through the experiences and beliefs of the biblical writers in their time and in their place so that we might see as they saw and understand that and that their experiences and their understanding of you, it could shape our experiences and our understanding of you in our time and our place. Amen. Have an awesome week, everyone.